Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. We have got a cast-iron assurance and a guarantee from the British government. The particular problems around the Irish border are being used politically to try to frustrate Brexit. Northern Ireland must leave uh, the European Union on the same terms as the rest of the United Kingdom. Northern Ireland would form part of our customs territory. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe Editor in Brussels. And I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's Correspondent in London. And I'm Colm O'Mungine, RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor in Dublin. Each week, Brexit Republic assesses all the latest Brexit developments in Brussels, London and here in Dublin. With Brexit Day edging closer, the withdrawal agreement bill has been making its way through the House of Lords, but the probable silence of Big Ben at 11pm on January 31st has outraged Brexiteers. Yes, we'll be looking at the probably ill-fated plan to bung a bob for a Big Ben bong and what that says about the mood of Britain on the eve of departure. And while the bell will toll for no one on Brexit night, the European Union has been sharpening its studs for the big trade negotiation scrap that will follow, with sharp warnings over how closely it expects the UK to maintain EU standards. We'll be taking a closer look at that level playing field issue and why it'll be a bruising battle. And as the Irish general election kicks off, we'll assess the impact Brexit might have, and we'll discuss Ursula von der Leyen's quick trip to Dublin, where she promised there would never be a hard border in Ireland. Sean, to you first, and the Big Ben bong bong. How's it all going over there? Not very well. Um, It's uh, as we speak and record this on uh, Thursday lunchtime, Uh, The lobby correspondents are furiously noting that, well, noting in a furiously written fashion, I should say, that the government's uh, official spokesman has said it's pretty much unlikely that Big Ben will bong for Brexit on the 31st. You may recall there's been a bit of a campaign getting going by the proponents of Brexit who want to mark the day uh, at the very minute, indeed, that Britain formally leaves the European Union. And one of the ideas they came up with uh, has been this idea that uh, Big Ben, the famous bell at the top of the clock tower at the Palace of Westminster, should be sounded at 11 o'clock. The only problem is, as you've probably seen from the television over the past few months, uh, indeed years, there's an enormous renovation works going on uh, on the Palace of Westminster complex. Uh, the clock tower itself uh, is undergoing, is, is hidden behind scaffolding uh, to a very large extent. And Big Ben itself, uh, or rather the mechanism that makes Big Ben bong, has been dismantled for the biggest renovation it's had in its 170 years. And, and putting I, it back is going to cost a lot of money. So it would, take, idea of it. it would take a rather big bong to make Big Ben bong at this stage. Was it a half a million it would take to get it up and running? Or was it more than that to install a temporary floor that would then have to be taken out when it was uh, going to get up and running again. Am I right well, on the figures? The, the, the House of uh, Parliament uh, Commission hopefully issued a breakdown on this. Yeah, they had to put in a temporary floor and reinstall a temporary mechanism that was used for New Year's Day. Uh, uh, then it has to be tested, etc. That cost about 120000 Then there's the pushing back of the planned works programs, the renovation, the proper building job being done that would be about 100 grand a week so they reckon a minimum of 320,000 is what it would cost for Big Ben to strike 
uh, 11 times, but it's probably going to get up closer to half a million, they reckon, because, you know, the way these builder things inevitably slip. So uh, it's a lot of money. Was was it 50 grand a bong? Right. Uh, The only good thing to come out of this, I have to say, is uh, a headline, newspaper headline of the year, once more proving that uh, tabloid newspaper sub-editors are the greatest at the trade on the planet. The Daily Mirror gave us the headline, Boris is bonkers, but bung a bob for Big Ben, Brexit bongs, bid bombs. No less than 10 words beginning with the letter B. What about inside the Palace of Westminster, Sean? What's been going on there in terms of the progress of the withdrawal agreement, Bill? Well, uh, we are now on uh, day three of the committee stage uh, of the bill in the House of Lords. And uh, the Lords, of course, are a revising chamber, so uh, they're not expected to do much by way of changing uh, of the bill, although some of the Lords there have been saying, yeah, we would like a, a couple of changes in there and that Parliament should do its job and, you know, as a matter of course, not just accept bills and process them through uh, really quickly. Um, a lot of the uh, debate seems to have been revolving around the um, Lord Alf Dubbs amendment that was stitched in to the withdrawal agreement uh, earlier in the year as part of that coalition building, if you like, that was going on in the Parliament to try and assemble votes to get the bill through. That was before the general election. Uh, this was an amendment uh, to ensure that uh, unaccompanied minors seeking refugee status in Britain will be accommodated uh, in the country. That was stripped out uh, after the election. Some people have seen that as a rather uh, cruel thing to do. The government case is no, we take a lot of child refugees anyway. Of course, we're going to continue to take them uh, into the country. None of that is going to change. We just don't think uh, an EU withdrawal bill is an appropriate place to have this amendment uh, stating something that we do anyway. Um, So it remains to be seen whether that uh, will be taken back in as a kind of a humanitarian nod uh, to the House of Lords and to um, to that other half of the country that perhaps don't feel terribly well about Brexit. It's a very small victory for them, it might be. On the other hand, they might just push it through. But we've been uh, introduced to the, well, to me, somewhat novel spectacle of a bishop, the Bishop of Leeds, taking part in this debate on Brexit. They're in uh, clerical gowns, uh, standing up in the House of Lords uh, and citing scripture in defence of an amendment to uh, a bill, in this case, the Brexit withdrawal agreement bill. So there you are. I think that might be a first one for Brexit Republic, a bishop intervening in a parliamentary debate about Brexit. Another B, another B word to add to all of those other ones at the beginning uh, of, of this particular podcast. Tony, Angela Merkel in an interview in the Financial Times today said Brexit was a wake-up call for the EU and Europe had to up its game and become attractive, innovative, creative, a good place for research, education uh, and competition it can be very productive, she was saying. She didn't make a huge mention of it, but Nonetheless, she says it's a wake-up call and Europe needs to up its game. I think she's talking more generally it needs to question how it retains its members and not have a repeat of of Brexit. But what are we seeing in terms of preparation for the next phase of things? Have we any more details on this since we last spoke? Yeah, well, I mean, first uh, first of all, since we've been talking about the the formalities around leaving in the UK and whether or not that would be celebrated um, by contrast in Brussels, there's a kind of a strange mood because... Obviously, people can't ignore what's going to happen on January 31st because it will be momentous and historic, but uh, nobody really wants to mark it in any way that might smack of either being celebratory or 
it being a, a moment of, of deep sadness and gnashing of teeth. So uh, it's very hard around this town to, to get uh, details on what actually is going to happen on the 31st. On, on the 29th of January, the European Parliament here in Brussels will formally ratify the withdrawal agreement, uh, and that means Brexit will then be able to happen two days later. Um, the UK uh, presence in Brussels uh, is what we call UCREP, or the UK Permanent Representation. It's been here uh, in one guise or, or one building or another uh, over 40 years. Uh, now, it's no longer going to be uh, called UCREP. It's going to be the UK delegation to the European Union uh, after the 31st of January. So all we know so far is that some guy is going to come out with a a drill uh, and a hammer and a few roll plugs uh, and a new plaque to put on the wall of the uh, of the uh, the currently UCREP building uh, in Brussels just off shoot the Schumann roundabout. Anybody who's covered European events here in Brussels will know all about sh- about Schumann and uh, the European Quarter. Um, that's where that that's one thing that they promise is going to happen. But interestingly enough, the the um, the human resources that the UK has in in um, in Brussels is going to change. It's not going to get smaller. It's actually going to get bigger uh, because at the time of the election, uh, there were 120 staff in UCREP. Uh, nowadays, there are 180 staff because that because the with the uh, trade negotiations are coming up and that means you need a lot more civil servants over from London uh, across all of the uh, huge uh, oceanic array of detail and uh, policy and dossier that the trade negotiations and all the other elements of the uh, future relationship are going to have to be worked out. Uh, so that's kind of the mood in, in Brussels. In Strasbourg there's, there's uh, uh, been scenes of MEPs clearing out their offices in Strasbourg. The same is going to happen in Brussels. Um, there's been a lot of chatter about Nigel Farage and the fact that, according to one report, he's going to get €150,000 uh, in a severance pay uh, because he's at 20 years as an MEP representing the southeast of England. Uh, all of his Brexit Party MEPs, 29 of which uh, were elected back in May, uh, they won't get anything because they haven't been here long enough. But there will be a number of perks uh, and so on and, and allowances that MEPs, uh, British MEPs, will still enjoy for a period of time, uh, just like any other MEPs who either lost their seat or who left uh, the Parliament. Uh, so that's really what's happening on the, the sort of presentational front. Uh, what about Tony? There's going to uh, just intervene one little point of, of detail there about the UCREP. We're seeing something similar here in London with the uh, European Commission's uh, delegation to Britain. That is now having to change uh, um, uh, over that uh, Brexit weekend into a mission. So it's no longer a delegation to a member state country. It's a diplomatic mission to a third country, and they have to realign their staff. They're all in a, a bit of a state of flux about who's staying and who's going and what their titles are going to be. Uh, all we know is that for the time being, they'll be staying in Smith Square, which used to be the Tory party uh, headquarters. Uh, but, but it will change. So, yeah, we're seeing a parallel process uh, happening here in London. Here's something that, that spans uh, both Britain and Europe, but we have to go back to the year 1666, the 17th century. Uh, Tony, this is all by way of, of coming to an important topic. Rem Korteveg from the Klingendal Institute, a, 
think tank uh, linked to the uh, Dutch Ministry of Foreign Affairs. He dug up a document that says in 1666, Charles II, after having regained the throne, granted the city of Bruges or Brugge as a token of gratitude, the eternal rights for 50 Flemish fishing boats to fish in British waters. This treaty will play no role in the upcoming Brexit talks on fish, of course, he says, and then tweets a picture of the nicely decorated woodcut of the, the said charter issued by Charles II to the, uh, the Flemish fishermen. Do you think it could be invoked, seeing as we've seen prorogation, Tony, uh, a reach back to the uh, to the 17th century? Stranger things have happened. Well, actually, Colm, when you talk about fish uh, and the common fisheries policy, uh, it is absolutely relevant, uh, that kind of document, because, uh, and it's going to be relevant to the negotiations because you are going to have a situation where EU member states will want to keep access to British fishing waters and the whole philosophical basis of that access goes way back to medieval times even before 1666 in that document you mentioned European countries and and states and principalities or whatever uh, did have access to uh, British waters because in those days they weren't really British waters they were the high seas uh, and you didn't have the modern concept of a 200 mile uh, exclusive economic zone where countries could assert uh, sovereignty over uh, the, the the waters that surrounded them, um, and of course, uh, as we've uh, spoken about before in the podcast, the EU wants to have continued access to British waters, and they have made it a precondition of the free trade negotiations that that is sorted out. Uh, now, of course, uh, the big win for Brexit was fish. Uh, Brexiteers could claim that Britain would be out of the common fisheries policy. They could take back control, start fishing for hundreds of thousands of more fish uh, and really build up their fleet. Uh, And that was one seemingly clear-cut victory uh, for Brexit. But of course, it's not as simple as that because uh, a lot of the fish or most of the fish that Britain catches, they export. And most of that goes to the European Union. Uh, So they can't uh, get access to the European market in a blunt way uh, unless they give European boats access to British waters. Um, So the way they codified this uh, ancient right of uh, Dutch or other boats uh, being able to fish in so-called British waters uh, was what is called uh, relative stability. You know, this came in in the 1970s and 80s. So re- relative stability was basically saying if countries enjoyed these historic rights to fish in British waters, then they should continue to enjoy those rights and they should have a proportionate share of uh, fish in British waters accordingly. Um, and, and essentially what the EU now wants in these negotiations is the status quo to stay uh, as it was. Uh, and the key uh, kind of sting in the tail for Brexiteers is that um, the EU is making uh, a clear link between fish and the free trade uh, agreement. In, so in other words, Well, in other words, they... they um, fish will not be negotiated as a separate thing. The the overall free trade agreement will have fish as part of it. So uh, the EU will say, if you don't give us the fish that we want or the access that we want, then you're not going to get the free trade agreement that you want. It's it's that uh, clear cut. Uh, And and that, uh, I suppose, 
uh, you know, puts everybody on a war footing when it comes to the negotiations because Britain, of course, uh, wants to take back control of its waters and wants to take, to take back control of its fish stocks. We've been having a series of seminars in Brussels where the European Commission has been meeting officials from member states. Uh, the Commission is setting out its views on the key topics of the negotiations uh, and member states are making their views felt. Uh, and this is all towards uh, getting a mandate for the negotiations that the EU will have. Uh, and that mandate uh, is uh, going to be ready very soon, uh, at the very beginning right. of February. Uh, and the, the um, this issue came up uh, in a seminar last week and the European Commission was quite clear and member states were also uh, reassured by this, including uh, the Irish, uh, that they would make fisheries a prerequisite of uh, the free trade as- agreement uh, as a whole. Which, Sean, in terms of the, the UK electoral, recent electoral landscape, what little support there was in Scotland, for example, for Brexit was to be found in fishing communities on the coast and in the fishing towns of the, the north of England as well. Uh, Brexit and taking back control of the waters was part of the rationale behind people voting in favour of Brexit. This will be one of the tests, as they'll see it, of Boris Johnson being a true Brexiteer with take-back control at the heart of the project. Yes, and it is a little bit tricky for him. I mean, Michael Gove, uh, his um, cabinet colleague, or erstwhile best buddy, uh, it comes from that uh, Scottish fishing uh, community. Um, but the uh, political declaration, uh, which is attached to the uh, withdrawal agreement, uh, calls on the parties to have a new fisheries agreement concluded and ratified by the 1st of July. So this one is coming at us really fast. Uh, and by putting it up front there, it is a neuralgic issue here. Uh, economically, you'd wonder why it's not a big industry uh, and it's not going to get any bigger because there just aren't any more fish in the sea. Uh, but uh, in terms of political capital uh, that gets expended, uh, it, it is uh, a really big issue. And I su- suspect it may have something to do with this old Britannia rules the waves uh, notion that it's a maritime, a seafaring nation, and therefore, of course, you'd be uh, dominant in the fishing industry. But uh, that's not really the case anymore, um, and probably isn't going to be the case uh, even after Brexit, even if you were locked into this uh, autonomous world of getting your own fish from your own waters, as Tony's pointed out. They don't eat most of those fish. They export them, and a lot of it goes to the EU. Uh, So if there's no deal on that and there's no deal on the trade, what's the point of fishing? You could see uh, a collapse, really, of the fishing industry uh, if that market access isn't uh, secured at the same time. And Tony, we, we touched on it last week, the notion of the level playing field. So just if you could recap on that and update us on how that's playing into things and how that message has been hammered home by Europe. Yeah, so uh, we've had, as I said, we had a, a seminar on fish. We, we're having seminars on all the issues, actually. Now, these are not obviously public seminars. These are Brexit coordinators from the member states being briefed by the the Brexit task force or the the trade negotiations task force from the uh, European Commission and a very important one this week was on the level playing field. Now, in simple terms, what it means is that the EU is going to have a free trade uh, negotiation with a huge economic power, uh, the UK, right on its doorstep. They are geographically and economically very close, but suddenly the UK will be outside the EU's uh, regulatory sphere, uh, potentially able to do what it wants with its standards, with its regulations, in order to win 
business from overseas to, to, to win in a trade battle. So the EU is saying, well, if you want to have a free trade agreement with us, if you want to have access to the single market, then you can't simply undercut us uh, across the board. Now, a good benchmark for this issue was in uh, going back to the first withdrawal agreement uh, that Theresa Bay negotiated, as we all recall, that uh, crashed and burned uh, so many times in the House of Commons. But you'll remember, too, that when she was trying to sort out the whole issue of the Irish border uh, and the backstop, she came up with this idea of a UK-wide uh, customs union that would be temporary, so the UK as a whole would stay in the EU's customs union or a union of the of the two uh, territories, so that there would be no customs formalities between uh, Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Uh, the Irish border would be free of customs checks, and that would be a temporary arrangement until a full free trade relationship was uh, fleshed out uh, over the years. Uh, now, that essentially gave the UK. Uh, sort of inadvertent access to the EU single market because it was a customs union. But this was obviously before there was a free trade agreement. So a member state says, well, hang on a second. You can't have this access through a joint customs union worked out through the divorce. Uh, if you're going to have something like that, then we need a level playing field. Uh, we need to have assurances that we're not going to be undercut, uh, as I've explained. Now, in the withdrawal agreement uh, that Theresa May uh, agreed to, she signed up to what are called non-regression clauses. Now, these are basically promises that the UK will not lower its standards uh, across the board, whether it's uh, the environment, whether it's taxation, uh, labour and social standards. Uh, and she also agreed that when it came to state aid and competition rules, the UK would in fact uh, agree to uh, what's called dynamic alignment. Now, uh, again, to explain that, that means that the UK would agree to stay in step uh, going forward with the EU, so uh, if the EU changes or tightens its state aid rules, then the UK uh, would agree to follow suit. Now, what's been happening is, uh, quietly, the European Commission uh, have been saying that, uh, actually, we're going to go back to what Theresa May promised us uh, back in 2018, and we're going to make that the baseline. We expect uh, in these negotiations that the UK will agree to all those non-regression clauses, uh, all those promises that they won't lower their standards just to win trade from overseas and to undercut the EU. Uh, and we'll expect um, the UK to have dynamic alignment in state aid. Um, uh, and in fact, at, at the seminar this week, uh, the French uh, delegation were saying, well, actually, we want dynamic alignment across the board. We want uh, the UK to keep in lockstep with the EU, not just in state aid. We want it also in uh, environmental rules and climate change, because, of course, as we've said before in the podcast, the EU is embarking on this massive uh, green deal, which means they will be having even more tighter regulations on, on environment and so on. Uh, so that is really the very tough signalling that's coming out of the Commission, and, uh, and the UK will not like this at all. Sean, in London, the, the stated position of the British government is clearly to diverge from the European Union and to go according to its own rules and regulations and cut trade deals, big trade deals with other countries. So how, how can the two be reconciled? Uh, they can be reconciled and they can be reconciled by talking their way around it. And the uh, official line 
from the government is not that they want to diverge on everything, that they want the freedom to diverge. So that also means that you can have the freedom to not diverge. Uh, and that's particularly important uh, in doing trade deals, uh, because European Union regulation, the EU is a global superpower when it comes to regulatory uh, regulation and standard setting. And things like, for example, the chemicals directive reach, uh, that has been taken on as an industry standard uh, by many of the big chemical companies around the world, uh, a kind of a regulatory uh, gold standard that they like to adhere to, even when they don't have to adhere to it. So uh, British uh, uh, ministers seeking to do trade deals uh, with the EU, uh, they would have to uh, stick with the REACH directive. But also, uh, if they're trying to uh, cut trade deals with other uh, significant economic actors, the likes of Japan or Canada or the US, where the industry would use a standard like this anyway, they're going to effectively be bound by that standard for those markets as well. So it, in the interests of uh, simplicity and rationality and avoiding cost, it would actually make sense for the British to stick by a lot of these uh, European Union uh, standards uh, and mechanisms. And indeed, there's provisions uh, in the withdrawal agreement uh, for Britain to re-enter uh, some of these cooperative areas uh, and attach itself to uh, some as-yet-to-be-defined mechanisms whereby they would get semi-formally involved in some of this uh, standard setting uh, into the future, as well as sticking uh, fairly closely to uh, what is there at the moment. Uh, and again, if we're going back to the Big Ben bongs, imagine if there was a complete hard Brexit and you're out of everything all at once, uh, trying to reinvent the wheel many times over for many, many sectors of the economy would be a, a, a gigantic process. It would be a tsunami that would swamp the uh, administrative capacity of the country. I think there's a, obviously going to be a political price, though, to pay for that, Sean. Would, would you say, uh, even though Boris Johnson has this huge majority, if if there's any sense that Britain has dragged itself through hell and high water to leave the European Union, then simply to uh, be a, a vassal state, as people would say, and, and be bound by EU regulations? Yes, but there is that potential, of course. And um, somebody was pointing out, I think it was the Guido Fawkes uh, website, uh, Twitter feed uh, today, uh, 40 uh, people switching votes could uh, pull down the government or certainly cause it embarrassment uh, in the, the parliament. And that's about half of the ERG uh, group uh, in the Parliament. So if an issue came along uh, that they felt strongly enough about, yes, there's certainly potential uh, for a political price, price to be paid within the Parliament itself for political agitation uh, to go on outside, uh, possibly uh, for some of these newer uh, Conservative voting constituencies to uh, be roiled up by some uh, issues that may be particular to their own uh, localities. Uh, but if we're back to this uh, new way of communicating about Brexit, i.e. not talking about it at all, where there's a kind of a tacit agreement to really not uh, overemphasize it, uh, declare victory on the 31st of January and then move on uh, and be pragmatic about it, uh, you can see how there's a, a fairly substantial interest between the government mechanism, the party political mechanism uh, and the industrial and trading sectors uh, of this society here in Britain to effectively keep stum about it and not big up the fact that 
they will be effectively following uh, EU rules. Once they can stick a, a union jack on whatever uh, local uh, arrangement they have for it, that might go a long way to satisfying uh, most of the uh, ordinary voting public. And again, this idea that they have the freedom to diverge or the freedom to opt in to any EU arrangements will, I think, go a long way to carrying much of the, cons the, the, the country with them politically on this because most people would adapt uh, or would adopt a fairly pragmatic uh, approach to their dealings with the uh, EU. And this notion that you hear a lot of in Britain, uh, a sensible arrangement, well, that sort of thing is a sensible arrangement. Of course, some people won't like it, but it depends on how much traction they can get. I, I think just on that point, if I, if I may butt in again there, Colm, uh, just is that one, one of the key messages from that uh, meeting or that seminar this week was that it's got to be level playing field across the board uh, or there's not going to be a free trade agreement. There was quite a, a, a strong message. Um, in other words, uh, it was really slapping down the idea that Britain could choose to uh, align in some sectors or, or uh, and then diverge in others. And, you know, people I've spoken to on the British side have said, well, uh, Boris Johnson uh, acknowledges the need for a level playing field, but uh, we will sign up to a level playing field that is commensurate to our access to the single market. In other words, we will pay a higher price on level playing field on signing up to EU regulations uh, to get a higher access. But where we don't need a higher access, then we'll we'll uh, diverge or we won't uh, have the same level of uh, the level playing field ambition, which is kind of a, a cherry picking uh, approach to it, which the EU uh, certainly, according to people I spoke to who were briefed on that seminar, uh, is just not going to accept. They're going to say, look, uh, you know, this is going to be a relationship that will stretch out for decades to come. Uh, and we need uh, clarity and we need a holistic, uh, straightforward approach to this, which means across the board level playing field uh, provisions, non-regression clauses, dynamic alignment where it makes sense. Um, uh, and there's not going to be any cherry picking. So I think there there could really be uh, a big clash on this uh, fairly early on in, in the negotiations. I think in terms of the communication uh, around this, I, I think we're starting to see a certain amount of preparing the ground already because a, a phrase that keeps cropping up is our standards are higher than the European standards, so we wouldn't have any problem uh, about aligning with them. So again, getting back to this idea of pinning a union jack to uh, any given policy uh, issue, uh, if they can say, uh, look, we have higher standards of regulation in this, so signing up to this European stuff is not a problem for us, uh, off we go. The problem for the EU side is uh, that's all very well, but Boris Johnson has promised to uh, reform the British economic model, and we just can't be sure, we can't necessarily trust the UK to stick by these standards over time if for, for some reason or another they need to lower them in order to uh, you know, get a, a leg up in, in a trade negotiation. The other shot across the bows that, that caught my attention uh, last week was um, with Ursula von der Leyen in her uh, holy trinity uh, of what we want in terms of the deal with the UK, zero tariffs, zero quotas, yes, we're all in favour of that sort of thing, says one and all uh, in Westminster. And then the third zero, zero dumping. And that gets back, I think, to your points about the, the level playing field, Tony. But in all of the trade negotiations um, that I've heard to have spoken about in, in Brussels and Strasbourg down the years, people have talked about uh, anti-dumping measures. And that's traditionally been uh, about uh, imports of goods that would undercut European 
producers, primarily around below-cost selling or uh, goods that are made with state aid and having to have some kind of countermeasures to that. But that's evolved over time, as you know, where they talk about now about social dumping, uh, about lower labour standards or wage costs, mm, and yeah. more laterally fiscal dumping. Uh, the idea, and uh, this, this has been directed internally at certain member states as well, that the tax uh, regimes uh, are effectively a form of state aid and are uh, helping. I, I can't uh, think of a state that fits that description. I couldn't possibly think of any state that would fit that country. Certainly state. not from where I'm sitting. No, no, definitely not, and, and you know, won't be heading for any courts. Uh, in Luxembourg way soon at all. Uh, but yeah, th- this concept of dumping is a really important one. I think we're going to hear uh, more about that. Yeah, well, the, it, whatever reluctance there is to speak about uh, or not to speak about the word Brexit in uh, in the UK where you are, Sean, the, there has been an extreme keenness on the part of uh, the Fine Gael party, the main party of government here, to put Brexit on the agenda for the election campaign. There's a, a certain eagerness, if not always a success, in getting it on the agenda as, as, as the big flag for the government's competence. And indeed, with, with Ursula von der Leyen being in Dublin um, yesterday, Wednesday, um, was that shamelessly used as a media opportunity by the government to well, uh, it, talk about Brexit? Yeah, well, they hoped yesterday was the launch of uh, the Fine Gael election campaign. The gun was fired earlier in the week. The election day was announced for Saturday the 8th of February and Fine Gael's pitch is look we're the statesmen here, we're the people who've gone out, we've represented Ireland and Europe, we've got uh, no hard border on the island of Ireland, we've been in lockstep with uh, with Europe and the subtext of that is a lot of people senior people in Europe are members of the European People's Party, Fine Gael is well positioned uh, to deal with them, they also wanted to introduce onto the agenda the issue of Billy Kelleher who's a Fianna Fáil MEP member of Renew Europe who'd voiced an intention to maybe vote against the European vote against the withdrawal agreement in the European Parliament vote. So Fine Gael was getting all its ducks in a row to have a big Brexit day yesterday. They went to County Monaghan on the border where Combi Lift, uh, a company where people have articulated uh, concerns about the difficulties of Brexit, whether to have been a hard border on Ireland. We had high-vis vests, we had Taoiseach sitting in the cab of a forklift. It was all supposed to be a day that began with Brexit and then it was supposed to end with Brexit with Ursula von der Leyen speaking at a banquet in Dublin Castle and they were going to compare themselves favourably to uh, other parties who admittedly have been uh, had a very similar Brexit position to Fine Gael and given them support on this. Indeed, the government survived through confidence and supply because of Fianna Fáil's stated position that there was stability needed for Brexit. But it all came rather a cropper yesterday because there was a very serious and horrific accident on the banks of the Grand Canal in Dublin where a bulldozer picking up tents in a clean-up operation Uh, There was some failure in the check to make sure there was somebody inside the tent. A man was given uh, life-changing injuries by the bulldozer and as a result, uh, homelessness was centre stage on the agenda and the Taoiseach in an attempt to drag Fianna Fáil into the issue of homelessness said that the Fianna Fáil Lord Mayor of Dublin needed to make a statement on this. There was controversy over that attempt to politicise the issue of the homeless man being badly injured on the banks of the canal and Brexit was knocked well and truly off the agenda with maybe some recovery later on in the evening but it was very much middle pages of the newspaper and homelessness was front and centre uh, on, on, on the front pages of the newspaper so not a great success in getting 
Brexit and the government's credentials there on onto the agenda yesterday. But uh, there's time, although uh, pretty limited time for Brexit, I guess, to come back uh, into the election campaign. But it is a, a very short campaign, uh, this Irish election campaign, uh, and uh, a lot will be crammed into uh, a pretty short period because uh, I guess in Ireland, uh, as indeed in Britain, because Brexit was such a big issue uh, in the political uh, agenda, a lot of other issues did tend to get crowded out uh, and then uh, are now coming back onto the agenda uh, politically. So um, as we've seen it here in Britain, you get this pent-up uh, backlog of political things that need doing uh, now jumping out onto the agenda here in Westminster. Uh, and I guess something similar maybe uh, in Ireland, Colin? Yeah, there there isn't much of a... There's not much danger of a radical change on, on the Brexit issue, no matter who gets into government ultimately after the February the 8th vote. The issue is is really, as as the main party of government, Fine Gael is trying to sell it, that they've got the personalities to close the deal. Indeed, Heather Humphreys, the uh, business and enterprise minister, was comparing Fianna Fáil's team as, uh, to, to Junior B, which anyone who's not familiar with uh, GAA in Ireland, Junior B is generally people who are on the downswing of their Gaelic footballing career, maybe a bit of a beer gut going on, fitness levels, not what they once were. They make up for their lack of talent by crunching tackles on the other people on the pitch who are normally spindly 17-year-olds who are aspiring to make it onto more senior teams, but they have to go through what's almost a medieval trial by ordeal on the Junior B Gaelic football pitch. So, in other words, Heather Humphreys is trying to say that Fianna Fáil is a, a mishmash of people who are on their career downswing and young neophytes who don't have the experience that Fine Gael has. But as I say, there isn't a party in the doll. That's been one of the consistent things in Ireland that Fine Gael has had political cover. The government indeed has had political cover and it has tic-tacked with the opposition parties and they've all had buy-in to the Irish Brexit position. They've all been ad idem on it. So it's very hard for people to sell anything other than experience and competence, they can't really say that anyone would spoil the Brexit party in going into this election. Colm, you paint a wonderful picture there, almost as elaborate as that document of setting out the ancient fishing rights of the city of Brugge. Uh, And to to anyone listening, uh, and and we do have a lot of listeners outside the island of Ireland, uh, and these islands, as uh, we sometimes call them as well, uh, GAA is the Gaelic Athletic Association uh, for non-Irish listeners, uh, just to put them in the picture there. Yeah, and if if you are interested in detailed coverage of of the Irish election, and you are outside of the Island of Ireland or on the Island of Ireland indeed there's a a, a regular election podcast being put out by RTE in which I have to declare an interest I, I am uh, involved in that podcast it's the Your Politics Election 2020 podcast which is available most days during the election so you can keep up to date with all the swings and turns uh, in the election if you want uh, if you want to download that uh, Sean to you first then in terms of wrapping up what's going on on the agenda over the course of the coming week as far as uh, preparations are going well they've got to get Brexit done uh, it's you know, we talk about it a lot, but it still actually hasn't been done and dusted in the formal sense. So the uh, House of Lords will uh, finish up their consideration uh, this week or early next week. Uh, if there's any other business, it goes back to the Commons for what they call ping pong, where they'll uh, or reconciliation, as it have it in the European Parliament, uh, where they will uh, negotiate between the Lords and the Commons. In reality, not much is going to get changed about it. Uh, so uh, if anything does get bigged up, it will be this uh, Alf Dubs uh, amendment on uh, 
refugee children, uh, if anything at all. And then it's off to the European Parliament uh, and the process there. So in terms of Britain, it's really just tailing out the Brexit legislation. And as I say, it's uh, died the death in terms of, of coverage. Uh, because it's in the upper house at the moment. And then it's all eyes on Big Ben not bonging on the 31st. If there is no free trade agreement by the back end of 2020 and it goes out, the UK goes out without a free trade agreement, that's presumably a big bang Brexit. Then you're going to have a big bang, Big Ben bong for Brexit. That's, and that's it may, why I it may say not those, be out of time those... to bong a bob for the big bang Big but ben it's already bong. paid for, like I said, all of those Big Bang fireworks that happen with the Big Ben bongs that are programmed in for the uh, January 1st every year. I mean, the Parliament passed a resolution on this in 2017, would you believe, about right. when precisely Big Ben would bong and they're having to deviate from parliamentary uh, orders now uh, for Brexit Day. Well, this just wasn't in the plan, ladies and gentlemen. And of course, it wasn't in the plan because Brexit Day should have been uh, last year. OK, well, to escape from what sounds like Spike Milligan's Ning Nang Nong, Tony what's going on in Brussels for the coming weeks. And I'm, I'm somewhat disappointed we didn't even get to talk about Megxit, given we're on such a podcast. I'm not disappointed, but we will leave that for another day. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, anyway, over here in Brussels, next week we have a couple of important council meetings. We have uh, Eurogroup um, and uh, ECOFIN on Monday and Tuesday. We have a Foreign Affairs Council uh, Foreign Minister's meeting on Monday, and Simon Coveney is expected to be over for that. Um, some talk that he might meet uh, Michel Barnier when he's here, which again could provide another Brexity electiony uh, backdrop uh, for the Fine Gael party. Who knows? That's to be confirmed. Uh, and the foreign affairs meeting will be on on uh, Iran and the Middle East, which again uh, is a signpost to the fact that the EU also has uh, big issues to deal with other than Brexit. Um, as we said, the uh, withdrawal agreement will be formally ratified by the European Parliament on Wednesday the 29th of, um, uh, of January, and then two days later, of course, we have Brexit Day. On the 5th of February, we expect that the European Commission will already have its draft negotiating mandate ready to go. There's some discussion around town here that uh, it's already uh, good to go the draft even though they're still continuing with these seminars on the different areas like energy and governance and so on uh, with member states but the word is that the draft negotiating mandate which will basically be the blueprint for the trade negotiations and the other stuff uh, that that's pretty much ready to go it'll be adopted by the uh, european commission by the college of commissioners on the 5th of February and then on the 25th of February uh, the EU General Affairs Council that's basically all the Europe ministers from around the member states they will uh, formally endorse the Commission's mandate to start those negotiations so that does then uh, point the way to the big negotiations starting at the beginning of March. All right. Okay, well, that's it for another edition of Brexit Republic from me, Colm O'Mungine, RT's Deputy Foreign Editor in Dublin. And me, Sean Whelan, RT's London Correspondent. And from me, Tony Connolly, RT's Europe Editor in Brussels. Thanks for listening.